0: Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me again here on the Education on Fire podcast. Now if you have a recommendation for a guest or if there's an organisation you've been working with that you think is just making a fantastic difference in education, please do let me know. Just get in touch by emailing me at mark at educationonfire.com and I'm always delighted to hear about new and amazing things which we can share here for the benefit of everybody listening. Now today I'm chatting to Melissa Lowry and she's an enthusiastic and passionate educator with over 20 years of experience working with students, teachers, administrators and parents. She currently serves as the principal of Christ the King, a K-8 Catholic school in Buckhead, Georgia. She also serves as a curriculum director and has taught pretty much every grade starting with early childhood through to the 8th grade. Melissa is the founder of Melissa Larry Education Coaching, a consulting firm that specialises in helping parents and educators build and maintain strong homeschool relationships. Full details of how to get in touch through this is available in the show notes, so please just click and find out more details there. She is also the co-author of Answer Keys, teachers' lesson plans for successful parenting and presents at workshops and conferences. This is a fantastic conversation about fantastic leadership and education and we talked through some of the details and things that happened through COVID and how the schools had to change and pivot to make the most of the situation and and also the knock-on effect as we are now. But I think more importantly it's having that child-focused idea and some of these conversations really really get to the heart of of what it is to to be involved in great education. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Melissa Lowry. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's always great to speak to people from the US because I know we have some of the same difficulties and the same struggles, even though we're with either side of the pond, so to speak. So yeah, thanks so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
0: So give people an idea, one, in terms of where you are, but kind of that sort of professional background in terms of how education has obviously been influential in your life.
1: Sure. So um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, which is in the southeast of the United States of America. And I have been in the field of education for about 24 years or so. I've taught all grade levels from about three years old all the way up through eighth grade. In the United States, that's about 14 years old. So that would be the last year before you go on to sort of a high school
0: experience
1: here. And then I've worked as a curriculum director. I'm currently a principal of a kindergarten, which is about five years old, through eighth grade, about 14 years old, um, uh, elementary school in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I've lectured at college. I've written a book. I do some podcasts and articles, and basically, I'm obsessed and very passionate about anything having to do with education and children and helping helping them to sort of develop into themselves, be their best selves, and then to help parents who also need assistance and other educators as well.
0: Fantastic, and I think the idea of community is something which I find is really important because we talk about people in silos don't we there's the teachers within school helping children and parents and peers and that kind of thing but of course it's that that community and that outreach of everybody's input which is probably the most important thing to the child themselves.
1: Absolutely Uh, a, a term that we use in the school that I'm Currently, leading is a community of caring. And so, we're looking at a very holistic approach to how our children develop over time. And we find that when you can build a strong relationship, uh, kind of like building a bridge between home and school, and sometimes I say it's bringing something from the classroom to the family room or bringing something from the family room to the classroom, when you make that connection and have that bond and it's strong, the children in all of our lives are just more likely to do well and to flourish and to thrive.
0: And do you have any kind of technology or apps or or things that you use within within your school that kind of helps that, that communication?
1: Yes, and I think the pandemic was a very interesting time for all schools because here in the United States, we received word um, basically from the local government that we were gonna shut down schools completely. And we had about four or five days to go from a completely in-person learning experience to 100% digital and online. And for those of us in education that don't specialize in technology, right? So. I specialize in literacy and language arts, and I was a middle school language arts teacher. And so that was my specialty. Technology is not. I can utilize it, and I know how to do things, but it's not sort of in my wheelhouse. So we had to work very, very hard as a full community to make that transfer. So we made a decision to take our school online to Google Classroom, which we actually had only been kind of dipping our toe into the water with at that time back in 2020. And we moved everybody to that platform within a week and then digitized all of our lesson planning and everything that we were doing. And so I would say that Google Classroom is the major platform. And then the tools within Google Classroom are things that we use. Um, I'm trying to remember now that the, the pot, it's not a podcasting, but the, the audio and visual app, it will, it will probably come to me, that we were using to be able to oh, screencastify. That's what it is. So we utilize screencastify quite a bit because you can have a lesson up or you can be recording a video and you they can see your face and you can be talking and pointing things out. And then you either could, you actually, that one you don't do live, that one you go ahead and then transfer onto like a google platform and i would say that was probably the easiest to use and the easiest to in-service our teachers on in this extremely short period of time besides of course the google suite that we use through classroom
0: yeah absolutely and it's it's been interesting actually sort of since sort of march 2020 in terms of the different platforms and what people used and and we're at this sort of really interesting juncture now of kind of people using what was available to them at the time and being very reactive, like you said, it's not necessarily something that you was sort of mainstream doing sort of on a day to day basis to suddenly obviously having to, but now people are then suddenly thinking, Okay, so I think we're probably going to be using this in some form or another as we go forward, and then sort of putting that kind of tech idea into how is this going to look as we as we progress into the future. So tell us a little bit about that in terms of, of that journey going forward.
1: So I think that it is an interesting journey because what we found during the pandemic, um, at least in the United States, was that teaching virtually is not very effective. And you went back to kind of community when we were talking about that earlier. And a lot of it has to do with the personal connection and the relationships that develop between the teacher and student. And so it was one thing when we were at the, the end of our school year and for several, of those last couple of months we went virtual because you already had relationships with your students. What was far more difficult was going back to school. And we were fully, the school that I'm at, was fully in person the entire time outside of that one small window. So when we went back to school in August, it was it was a really, really kind of interesting transition. Parents were not allowed to come on campus, so they weren't developing relationships. We could only talk to them virtually. The kids were kind of coming off only having seen... Their teacher for the last couple of months and then learning how to negotiate their relationships in person and then how to use that technology as they were going forward. And so I would say that, you know, we've kept Google Classroom and that has worked out really, really well. And we have continued to use certain things. So we will use Screencastify um, even to record things on Google Classroom for kids to go home and view again we will use other things like quizzes and Kahoot and Quizlet and Socrative, and there you know there are a million apps that you could download. But what we've actually found is that the kids are craving to move away from that technology a little bit now that we're able to have those relationships back again, and so we've actually moved some of our platform off of digital and back to paper and pencil. And one example would be like middle school math. We used to use something called OneNote, which the kids would write directly onto their Chromebooks or their Surface Pros if they were using those. And we found that their thought process was not as as complete as when they were actually off the computer 100% and doing it paper and pencil. And so it's it's been an interesting relationship to negotiate because you were... Tied and dependent on technology for this period of time, and then having to learn how to continue to integrate it, but then also move back away from it for the types of activities where kids learn better when they're physically doing something as opposed to to doing it digitally.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And and I love the fact that, like, say it, we, you know, we sort of talked about that community and the difference between home and school and that kind of thing. And I think being able to have a closer connection, because like you say, they may have seen this particular part of their lesson in school and then they can see it again at home, depending on how it's recorded or how it's used. Um, And so then you sort of get away from that kind of this was your time to learn it and now we've moved on or we're not quite sure how to teach it at home because I don't quite know as a parent how it's taught in school and and that kind of thing. so I think, like say, that's a very beneficial thing. And also I hear this quite a lot in terms of, you know, we are human beings, you know, and I think the the, the communication and, and the being together and the interaction is so incredibly important and it is very different when it's online, especially as adults, even more so when you're children. And I think it's fascinating as we sort of go forward and see how different schools are doing it and different children and different different parts of the world are kind of doing it in different ways. And I think I think the hybrid blended however you want to describe it look will be different in different areas and different scenarios depending on on the children and the teachers involved but also in terms of of what those personal needs are more than just the education ones
1: I I couldn't agree with you more and it, it is an interesting relationship one thing I have liked about having things kind of online and you touched on this was we were banking, as I like to call it, lessons, right? From that spring of 2020. And so I personally was doing like a lot of reading to the kids and different things. Well, we banked all of those and they could be used again, at a later time, because I was just reading stories. And some teachers, especially the math team, felt that when they were recording these videos, it was almost like a kind of like a Khan Academy type thing. Well, we banked all those videos. And again, now they're able to repost those a year later, because the way that they're teaching the material is still the same. And it's just, as you said, it's twofold. If a student is sick, or if a student is out for a particular reason, or they just don't understand something, they can go back and watch their own teacher again. And we found this to be beneficial when we had quarantine. So even though we were face-to-face learning, we had pretty strict quarantine rules for exposure and then for positive cases of COVID. So we might have a student move out of school for like 10 full school days because of an exposure or a positive case. And with a lot of the younger children, they were either asymptomatic or very mild. And so they were able to kind of do some work at home. And that was really beneficial to have those extra lessons that were online and that the kids were able to access. So I think that that was something that uh, we found to be really, really positive. But on the flip side, we're very social beings and we definitely have seen that our students suffered from not being in school and not being able to have those interpersonal relationships with both their peers. And then again, with the adults in their life, with the teachers, so on and so forth. Um, And that we saw happen even when we were, in school learning with masks on, that was in, that was interesting. And then when the kids were coming in and out quarantining, and they still had difficulty with some of those interpersonal relationships. And we're still seeing that with our young people. I call it a COVID hangover, where we're still seeing some revi- residual effects in our students from having been in this sort of odd jump in and out of school model for a couple of years now.
0: Yeah, and I, and the thing that um, I always think as well, it's a little bit like children who are kind of young in their year, as a percentage of their life, um, they're not behind, but they're they're young. You know, there are children who are sort of maybe twenty five percent or so older than than other children when they're sort of first starting out. So so those young children who've only experienced or well, a large proportion of their school as COVID children, you know, like say, whether it's been virtual only or all this kind of in and out of school as things have changed. It's really not surprising, is it, that that, that there is, like say, this COVID hangover, because it's that becomes the norm, except, you know, it's not the norm. And then everyone thinks oh, we're, we're kind of back to normal now, except that that normal never really existed for some of these children. So you can see how it takes a lot of thought and a lot of care, but also a lot of time to kind of readjust as we do sort of hopefully get back into a situation where it is going to be a bit more of, a, of an organic, back to normal sort of idea.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because even this year, uh, so last year we were in school with the full masks. This year we went back to school and we went mask optional, like in the late fall. So for like phonics, which is where you're teaching that sound symbol relationship, A says, ah, that type of thing, you have to see somebody's mouth. And we have those youngest learners in our school. And it was it was very, very difficult to actually teach those lessons and to have to have a mask on. I mean, that definitely impacted phonics development for young children. And then if you really look at the last couple of years, the students that are in third grade in the United States, so that's about nine years old, give or take, they are our last class that had a full regular year of school without a mask, without a quarantine, without any of that. And so you're exactly right that anybody who's below you know, nine years old, eight years old, really truly has never been in school or formal school without the impact, at least here in the United States. And we're definitely seeing that because as I said, the school we're on principle, we start with five-year-olds and they're just coming out of like a preschool type environment or, or you might call it an early learning environment uh, in the UK. And so the social skills and a lot of the things that we would expect, like soft skills or people call them executive function now, we would expect them to come to school with those skills. And we are finding this year in particular, and even last year, that those students are coming at, with a deficit in those areas. And we're having to spend more time on social emotional skills than we are actually on some of the academics, which is which has is in, in, been very, very interesting to see And we're just going through an extraordinary time. I told a parent the other day when we were talking about something, I said, you know, I don't have an answer for you. And the reason why is because in our lifetime, we've never had to deal with a pandemic that has had such a large impact on education. We've just never had to do it, at least as a nation in the United States, and I don't think anywhere in the world. And so we just don't have all the the answers yet. I think there's going to be some research that's going to have to take place over the next few years to see just just how adversely uh students have been affected by by the pandemic. It's 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 gonna go on for a while, those effects.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't want to get too far down the, the rabbit hole of testing and and, <laughs> and government strategies and all that kind of thing. But I think it's it's such an important thing, I think, to have a conversation about, like you say, when you're talking to parents and and staff as well that um the only reason someone is deemed to be behind is because there's a marker in the sand that says at this age you must be this or you must be able to do that and that kind of thing. And I think if you can't even perceive the fact that that should be different, having gone through a global pandemic, it kind of <laughs> it kind of sets the the stakes in, in in sort of full view in terms of how that is. And I, I think those people who are able to to kind of embrace the fact that life has been very different and we need to irrelevant um sort of depending on what you perceive those sort of systems to be do the best for the children and what they need now and allow it all just to kind of work its way through then, then I think there's a kind of a relief then in terms of that's how education should be anyway. But it takes quite a brave and fearless, um, certainly principals and, and head teachers I think to kind of set that tone as we as we sort of step forward as, as the testing starts to come back and in, in the UK we've got Ofsted and, and inspectors coming in and that kind of thing. I, th- I think it's so difficult for everybody, but it is that sort of fearless approach which is is the only thing that we can do to really support the children.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent. I don't know how it works in the UK, but in the United States, we have what's called public schools. So That would be the government run school. And then you have charter schools, which are sort of public schools, but they're run by private entities, but they're free. And then you would have parochial schools and private schools. So I'm the principal of what we would call a parochial school, which means it is a religious school attached to a church. So I'm Catholic and I'm at a Catholic school. And the reason why that's important right now is because we have much broader jurisdiction over what we teach and how we teach it. So we follow the Georgia state standards, which would be what the public schools or the government run schools follow. And then we can add our own curriculum on top of that. And then obviously religion is a, is a separate thing. But the reason why I'm bringing that up is we can pivot pretty quickly. So what we did at the end of that three month quarantine is we reviewed all of our curriculum maps. And we reviewed how we were teaching everything and what we thought the gaps were. And we had our teachers at the different grade levels meet together and say, "Okay, this is what I got to during that quarantine period. This is what we didn't. This is where you're going to need to start next year. And we had the freedom to make those choices. And so I actually feel that the students that are within my school and other parochial schools, they've been done a great service. That because we've been allowed to pivot so quickly and make changes, whereas unfortunately the government run schools or the public schools, their principals don't have the type of autonomy that I'm able to enjoy in my position. And so when you talk about testing, that's one of the issues. They still have the same state standards with the same testing system, with the same expectation level. And I don't see them pivoting the way that we've been able to. And then we also only take one standardized exam a year and we use it as a guidepost, as opposed to a place where you're ranking the students or you're ranking the teachers and things of that nature. It runs a little bit differently um, in non-government schools in the United States. And so we've been able to enjoy the freedom to meet our students where they are and not where we want them to be or where we think that they should be. Because again, as we've said, we're in the middle of pandemic and everybody in some way, shape or form is a little bit behind. And it's been great to be able to meet that need. But I do worry about the public schools here where those students don't get that luxury. And then they also have economic challenges, which I'm sure that you would, that you're seeing in the UK, like your internet is only as good as the device you have and the connection you have. So an issue we had here in some of our lower income areas, well, they didn't have hotspots. They didn't have places to connect. So when the wireless companies went in and they put in more hotspots, which was great, and then there were free computers that were going out, well, if these parents had cell phones and they hadn't paid a bill, they couldn't access the hotspot. So we have a huge population of students in the United States who were in public schools, who are economically disadvantaged, who didn't learn at all during the pandemic because they were given a device and they couldn't hook up or they were given a device and the device was taken from them or it wasn't used properly. And so those students, the gap was already wide and we're going to see that gap continue to widen, which really speaks to, you know, inequality and how unfortunate that is. But I, I don't know if the I, I would assume you'd have some of those same challenges in the UK, but that's something we've seen in the United States is those poor students who were already somewhat left behind. We really saw that gap widen because they did not have equal access to the technology itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that was certainly the case here as well. And um, and I think, you know, from my own personal experience that, you know, i uh, consider myself to be sort of tech savvy and, and you know we have access to devices here but the moment we went into lockdown there was myself trying to to work my wife trying to work and three children trying to study <laughs> with the greatest will in the world we don't have five um computers that are, are top spec and being able to do that there was a certain amount of okay so we can work in this way or that way or like you say can we get another device because this isn't going to work long term and obviously say like you said you don't know how long that was going to be going on for so i think it was such a big issue and i and i think it's one of those things which i know that people are talking about a lot and and like say the gap is widening but it'll be interesting to see what gets put into place to try and help it because as soon as the pandemic is something which is in the past and something we talk about as a historical thing it could happen again or whether it happens again or not there's going to be this idea of hybrid and blended learning and so we need to make sure that the children that need that support no matter what their background have access to it and if they're skilled and wanting to study they need to be able to do that and that's going to more likely be online like you said when it's out of those school hours
1: right and that um is what's unfortunate about something like a pandemic, because let's say you had an after-school tutoring program, or you were making, you were giving access to hotspots and devices for students who couldn't access them at home. Well, during the pandemic, everyone is totally separated, right? And so even those options were no longer available. And what we also saw in the United States, and I don't know in the UK, but we have students who receive funding for breakfast and lunch at school. Well, what they hadn't accounted for was when they went into quarantine those were no longer available. And so you saw some real challenges. And I would say our neighborhood schools pivoted quite well. And what they started doing was doing like walk through lines with food where people could come through and get a breakfast and lunch. But we had children who were getting two meals a day in public school. And if all of a sudden you're on quarantine, they didn't have access to that anymore either. So they're not only losing out on the education part, but they're losing out on the nutrition. So I do hope that our government schools and our public schools are starting to think um, now that they've had all of this experience to say, okay, what went well, what went wrong? What do we replicate? And then what do we change going forward? And I would say that from where we are as a propial school, some of the silver linings, you know, some of the things to, to feel good about are, we came up with some systems that worked really, really well for our students and for our teachers and now we've just worked on perfecting them. And so even though we didn't have a ton of quarantining this year, I did um, sort of, I wouldn't call it demand, but required the teachers that they continue with what we had called um, lesson modules that were weekly and very detailed in case we had to pivot again. And I kept saying to everybody, we have to plan every day as if we're going into a pandemic within 24 hours. That's how I want you planning. This way we are banking all of this information and now we'll have done two entire years using these modules and we can bank them through Google, that way if all of a sudden we have to pivot again, we can go back to our curriculum maps, we can pull this information out and we can reuse it again. And you're not reinventing the wheel. And every single time we have to do something new or different we are sitting with our tech people, which aren't a lot, you know, we're not a huge school and we're saying, okay, again, what went right? What went wrong? What do we replicate? What do we change? And then how do we make this better going going forward? And so there, there have been some silver linings in this too. I just hope that some of our larger school systems that, again, they can't pivot as quickly as a, you know a small school like where I am, that they are also trying to do that as well.
0: And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you talk to a parent three years ago and they were looking what school would I like my child to go to and they're looking at various different schools, the conversations we're having now weren't going to be the top of their mind necessarily. (laughs) Um, And now all of a sudden you've got this whole sort of different dynamic, but such a really important one, like I say, because you have the, the authority and the ability to pivot, to have sort of the amount of freedom that you do to to build to to support children in that way and and that that's really important i mean that that's that's such an amazing thing which is slightly different here in terms of it's very much kind of private and public and and so you, you don't quite have i think some of those different gray areas and in, in terms of the different sort of extra extra skills that you do and the extra ability to have different Different takes on things within sort of different parts of uh, effectively um, sort of the public sector, which is which is fascinating.
1: The other thing that was different here too was the type of quarantining. So when we went into the automatic lockdown, that was every that was everybody in the United States. But again, when we went back to school in the fall of two thousand twenty, so in August of two thousand twenty, after that mandatory it was up to each school sk- system to decide what they wanted to do. And so the Catholic school system decided we were gonna fully go back in, in Atlanta, Georgia. The, the Archdiocese said, we are fully going back to school in person. Um, and in 2020 hindsight, it was a fantastic decision. And I stand 100% behind our superintendent. It was a tough decision to make. We, Our kids did not fall as far behind, but we were able to be in school. Whereas our government run public schools, they spent almost another entire year doing the virtual learning, which again, I think that that gap widened even more, whereas at least our students, even our underserved students, they were able to get to school every day. So they had their technology, they were able to eat. I mean, they had all the things that they needed because they were getting on campus. And so we even saw kind of an inequality from the standpoint of different school systems reacted different ways. And our school system just said, we're gonna take the risk and see how this goes. And I would say um, the first year of the pandemic, we only had out of 570 students and 80 something staff members, we had 33 cases. And then this past year, we were even freer and we were mask-free and we've had more cases, but none, I think we maybe had 100, but they none that resulted in anything more than mild symptoms. And so we were it was difficult because you are, you're taking a risk, right? You're saying, okay, we're going to have our employees and everybody come to school and we're going to have our students come to school and we're we're going to take a risk with that. But what is the reward? And what we have found is the risk that we decided to take as a school system paid huge dividends because our kids have been able to be in school for the last two years. And for almost two thirds of this year, we've been mask optional without a huge bump in cases and I I don't know how to explain that I'm not a doctor
0: but uh, but like you say you know when when you're talking about that those sort of not even necessarily gaps in learning but gaps in in being social with other people and like you say that direct contact with teachers and, and all of those sorts of things which are much harder to kind of quantify um yeah like I said, it really does make a big difference to to every child in that scenario, especially the younger children, like I say, who've had less time actually being in school full stop anyway. Um, It sounds like, obviously your passion comes through so, so so clearly. I'm just intrigued in terms of your coaching as well, because most um, principals and heads that I know are completely flat out pandemic or not in terms of the workload and what it is that you're doing. So, so tell us how that sort of coaching side and all that stuff outside of your school sort of fits into this education life as well.
1: So when my children were born, I've got two, I've got a 17 year old and a 14 year old, I made the choice that I wanted to spend some time at home, but I didn't want to leave education completely. And that's when I started my education coaching business. And basically what I was trying to do, um, well, or what I did was I created that bridge between home and school. And so the idea was to work with parents, not the children themselves. I wasn't a tutor tutor. I was working with parents to help them to navigate bringing their children up from birth up through school and then coaching the parents to help their their children during school, which was especially helpful during a pandemic when we had a bunch of parents... trying to teach their kids at home when they weren't teachers. And so the coaching is really about helping the parents more than the kids. So I do separate coaching for students, and that's more essay writing for college and things of that nature in the United States, as opposed to math tutoring or something like that. But for the parents, it really has to do with coaching them through the parenting process and helping them to understand and to build that relationship between home and school so they can put their children in a position to be really, really successful. And I, ha- I enjoy that coaching aspect. I can't do it quite as much now that I'm back in a principal role. But for about seven months during the pandemic, I had moved out of um, the school that I'm principal at. I was the curriculum director and I had moved out and I was actually running a micro school during the pandemic out of my house for students who were in the public school system and couldn't go to school in person. So I was running that out of my house and working with those parents, too, to help them manage and navigate the virtual learning process during the pandemic, which was an extremely challenging time, but very um, fruitful. I mean, and it just was something where it was very personally and professionally fulfilling with the students, but also working with the parents, I found it to be really fulfilling as well. And I, that's kind of why I still continue to do it, even though I don't have a ton of time, because it's, it's so nice to help parents have less anxiety. Parents have so much anxiety, at least here in the United States, about doing things right and getting their kids prepared. And they don't have a lot of people to turn to. And so that's something that I really enjoy. The other thing that I also do in in my side sort of time mark is I don't know how they do it in the the UK, but we do something here when a student might have a learning disability like dyslexia or something like that is we do something called a psychoeducational evaluation. And a psychiatrist or psychologist will conduct that over two or three days. And there are tons of different tests and they're very intricate and very difficult to interpret. And then you get this huge report back. They walk through it with you for like an hour, and then they throw you out the door, and these parents have no idea what to do with their child who might have a learning disability. And so part of what I would do is receive those reports, sit down with the parents, unpack the report, talk to them about what the potential implications were in the educational environment, go over the accommodation, so maybe the child needs extended time on a test because their processing speed is slow. I would help the parents with advocacy for their child. So I would either go to the meeting at the school with the parents, or I would just advise them ahead of time so that they knew what they were doing when they walked in and they had fewer questions. And again, bringing down that anxiety because when you hear your child has dyslexia, as an educator, that's a lot. And and one of my children is dyslexic. As an educator, it's a lot to take in. When you don't have that background or that education, it's, it's overwhelming. It's like getting any other medical diagnosis and then the doctor saying, yeah, I'm just going to let you treat yourself. Like, I can't do that. And so that was really a lot of what I was doing. was working with those psychoeducational evaluations, sitting with the parents, holding their hands, answering their questions, and then helping them to learn to advocate for their child. And that's something that, the United States and I don't know if other countries, but United States, we don't have a lot of people who do that. We have great psychologists and psychiatrists who do the testing and explain it, but they're not there afterward because they've moved on to the next student. So there, we need more people who are sort of in advocacy, I would say.
0: Mm, I love that. and I, And I think the one thing you need is time isn't it because you have to process what's going on and then like you say what do i put into place what do i ask for even you know or like say what questions do i need to be aware of so that i can then help um and and you need that time and that support and i think the hand holding analogy is is such a is is exactly what you need isn't it adult or child in terms of just what is it get, um, that is going to is going to really support me i th- i think that's fantastic um in in terms of of the other sort of coaching side of it is there are there sort of themes and things that you you sort of share which are able for um or there for anybody to help them be successful or is a lot of what it what comes about very much sort of a personalized idea of that kind of thing so you sort of got structures if you if everyone does this it's going to really help you be successful and then you sort of bring that down to and in your case this is probably the best sort of path based on that or is it all sort of very individual?
1: I would say with a psychoeducational evaluation, it's super individual. I mean, it's every profile of a dyslexic or a student with auditory processing or even students who are on the autism spectrum. Those are all going to be very personalized. But what I would say is when I'm coaching parents, there is one sort of, I I call it like my, my magic bullet sort of piece of advice that can be used with children at all different ages. And I think it works in both academic situations and then also in social situations, like with sports and different things. And that is, and I touched on it a little bit earlier, it's four questions. What went right? What went wrong? What do I replicate? And what do I change? And basically that is a simple way of getting students or anybody to engage in the metacognitive process. So metacognition is thinking about thinking, analyzing how it is that you do something. And so what I would say to parents is if your child brings home an F on a test, you yelling at your child will influence this process zero going forward, if not damage the relationship you have with your child, your child already feels bad your child already feels like he or she has failed and your child's feeling helpless because he or she may have studied or tried really, really hard and not gotten the result. Correct? So what I always say is you help your child take a failure bow or you take a failure vow, okay, I failed. And then you got to figure out how to move on from that point. And that's where the four questions come in. So if my kids struggle on something, the first thing I say is, okay, well, you know, what went right? Let's, let's start with what went right on this assessment. And usually you can find one, maybe even little tiny thing, and you're like, okay, that's the thing that you want to try and capitalize on next time. But now let's look at what went wrong. Did you not study the night before? Did you stay up too late? Um, Did you have too many extracurricular activities? Did you not make the note cards? And you try and identify why the situation went south, why it went bad. And then you create a game plan for how to address that next time. Because what I find with children is that they get very, very anxious when they don't, when they cannot control things. And we really, in our lives, can control very few things. I mean, we, I mean, I, I could walk out the door and get hit by a car. Like you can't control your life, but you can control your reaction to things. And that's why I feel like with parents, instead of yelling at your kids, instead of help them brainstorm and help them get control of the situation so they can navigate it next time. And it even works in sports. So you lose your soccer game, football in the UK. So you lose your game. You say what went right in the game today? Was it the way that you played was it the way that your team played and then what went wrong? So were you guys not passing? Well, was someone hogging the ball? What happened that was wrong? And then how can you go and talk to your coach about how to change that next time or look inside yourself? Did you have a bad attitude today? Like what happened and how do you change that for next time? Because again, yelling at your kid because they didn't play well or yelling at them while they are on the field. I was a soccer coach for years. That never helps having a bunch of parents yelling at their kids or yelling at you and your coaching. But those four questions, I have found that in a myriad of different situations can really help calm people down, help get them grounded, bring down their anxiety because they have a little more control. And then I think it's really good for relationship building with your kids because you're helping them learn how to solve their own problems. And so then eventually they get to the point of independence where when they screw up, they're like, "Okay, what went wrong? What went right? And they engage in that metacognitive process on their own. And that helps with other executive function skills later on. But that's sort of my favorite. And I would say that I use that across the board with parents of four year olds and parents of 20 year olds.
0: Yeah, I love it. And like I say, because you can use it in so many different scenarios and so many different situations. And, and it's interesting, because I sort of had this sort of conversation with my daughter. um, Because, you know, going back to the pandemic, <laughs> very briefly, but just that kind of, you know, being online all the time, and she wasn't an she wasn't in an exam year, it, um, so therefore there are other focuses for the schools. You know, they were doing what they were doing and and getting their education, but they weren't the focus. You know, it wasn't their GCSE or their A level year. And then they've suddenly gone back to school and there is an exam at the end of the year and all of a sudden it's focused on mock exams and testing and this sort of stuff and they've not even been in school so all of a sudden they're only in school and it's kind of this could be important because exams could be stopped and we'll be using your mocks as the grades and all that you know like i said the anxiety just comes from anywhere um and and, and i said it's it's that kind of i don't agree with the amount of testing that goes and i don't agree with all of that kind of pressure but Let's think about this. One of the things that we know you were anxious about was you didn't know where you were going to sit in the exam. You didn't know where you were going to have to stand as you were going in or or what you'd need to do to begin with. So no matter how well you do or don't do in the exam or the test itself you know that next time that's going to be your chair or that's how they're going to organize it and like i say it's the unknown which is often the fearful thing and the scary thing so even if the only thing you take from this test or this mock or whatever it happens to be is the fact you now know more about it that means that you haven't got to worry about that again because all of this experience is a positive thing and then all those like i said all the things you can then put in place to help you in the way you think about it and go about it and and that framework is so important and again it sort of almost goes full circle back to this community thing because if that's reinforced by the staff and the parents and the children and you all know that you're you're thinking and working in that same way then everything becomes a positive
1: right it really does or it or you forgive yourself for certain things. Like, I, I just remember this student I had when I was teaching English, and she was a competitive gymnast. I mean, really, really competitive gymnast. And she didn't do well on a test. And so we sat down and we kind of walked through. And I said, Well, you know, what's been going on all week? Because normally you're really well prepared. Well, and it turned out she was prepping for this huge meet and she had practiced 16 or 20 hours that week. And I was like, Okay. And I was like, You made a choice. And she's like, Well, what do you mean? And I said, Well, In this particular situation, you made a choice to put the gymnastics ahead of your studies and it's okay. And she just like, all of a sudden it was like this, like her mind exploded because she realized that a life is a series of choices and that we can't give 110% to everything that we do every day. We're constantly making those choices, right? Um, If I work really, really hard, I may go home and not have as much to give to my spouse, right, because I've made a choice to go 110% here or whatever it is. once she realized that and that light bulb went off, she really started approaching school from a different position. And it wasn't that gymnastics and, and academics had to fight against each other all the time. It was this constant sort of give and take and this balance. And that's what I talk about with those four questions, even influencing sort of executive function. She was able then to apply that in a soft way to sort of other areas of her life. And then it did also, again, help with the anxiety because she realized, she's like, okay, so if I know that I'm gonna have to prep for a meet like this, I either have to change how I prepare for academics or I have to forgive myself that I just might not get as high of a score. And the other thing I told her was advocacy. I said, you know, if you had come to me a week ago and said, this is going down, like I need to practice, like I'm gonna be in the gym 20 hours a week and we would have worked out a schedule. I would have sat down with you. I would have talked to you. I would have seen with administration if we could have done an alternative testing schedule for you. Like, how do you kind of be more proactive with the other teachers next time? And so that was a whole process that we got to go through. But she learned about that whole thing that life is—it it is a series of choices—and when we can forgive ourselves for the fact that we can't be all things to all people all the time. And we're not going to be perfect at everything. Um, Actually, we're going to be perfect at nothing, um, except being imperfect. That would be the only thing. (laughs) I do think that it does help a little bit with anxiety, you know, as well in our students that, again, in the United States has just exploded and the pandemic has certainly not uh, helped at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, it brings two things to mind for me. One is that exactly what you said, it's that opportunity cost, isn't it? We can do this, but it means I can't do that. Or there's a there's there's a, a kind of a shifting balance there somewhere. Um, and, and in that same way, I like to think of these things in terms of a sort of a a life work harmony rather than balance because a balance often means that it sort of has to look this way and that way and like you said if you've got a meet or something coming up then it's going to be weighted in a certain way if you've got holidays then you might weight it a different way and, and and so it might look different on any given day or week or month or or even semester or however it comes around and when you I think when you think of it like that you feel like you have more control even though you don't necessarily know how the outcome is going to be you know that one thing is going to have a knock-on effect to the other not good bad or indifferent but it's going to have an effect and then therefore you can kind of like you say it's much easier to forgive yourself or certainly just to be accepting of, of how that sort of ends up turning out in reality
1: yes especially again with the things you can't control and so sometimes the student will say you know oh at the last minute we had to go out to dinner for my grandma's birthday and i was like okay and i'm like so you planned a study schedule and it got screwed up at the last minute and so the result of this test or assessment or whatever wasn't what you wanted it to be hey that's okay you're just going to move on from this because this probably isn't going to happen in the future. Or you're going to chat with your parents and be like, Hey, you know, don't pull that on me again, or we got to go out for grandma's birthday or, you know, whatever it is. And, but I think that again, it allows for that, that metacognitive process of thinking about, Oh, okay. I can control my reaction to this. I can, even though I couldn't control grandma and that, you know, going out to dinner, I can control how I'm reacting to that happening and not again, allowing myself to, to feel so bad simply because I didn't do well on a test here or something else.
0: Yeah and I, and, I, and I love it across the board Joe you know, like say the conversation with any child about that the parents about that how how I think how members of staff then approach those conversations like you say based on all oh, this this result isn't quite what I expected you to have but like I say understanding all these things we've been talking about and how you then have that conversation or how you go about it makes a big difference and and that's what sort of brings us really nicely in terms of Your something valuable about your school experience, or or a teacher that you that you remember, kind of the young Melissa. that was sort of that that one with the pigtails and (laughs) heading off (laughs) bright eyes, going going into school.
1: Well, okay, so I'm gonna unfortunately give you the opposite side of that. So part of why I became a teacher was a teacher who gave me the example I would never want to follow, Um, and she managed to crush my like little tiny spirit when I was about 11. And I had like two subsequently really difficult academic years after that, because I had a teacher who managed to make me feel small. And what I realized in that moment was that a singular person can have a far greater impact on one's life than than one might think before that. And I have carried that with me my entire life, knowing that as a teacher I might teach middle school English for eight years, but for that child's sixth grade year or seventh grade year, or eighth grade year, that is the one shot that they've got. And I'm the one person who's going to influence that experience for them. And I just got that burned into my mind at a very, very, very young age at about 11, that it one person can have that have that effect. And then I've kind of parlayed that into being an administrator because I know as the principal of the school or the headmaster, if they call it or whatever it is, I have to have a lot of interactions with faculty and staff that sometimes can be difficult or uncomfortable. And I'm always keeping that in the back of my mind that I'm never going to be the person who, who makes you feel small. And so on one end, that was sort of Um, kind of a negative experience, but on the very positive end, and when I was in my last year, before we go off to university, I had like an advanced, they call them advanced placement classes in economics. I don't know how I got placed in that class because Mark, I did not deserve to be in that class and I was never going to be great. And I do remember the teacher in that class saying to me pretty point blank in the beginning, Melissa, you probably, this is probably not the right fit, but I think you can do this. And I know you can do this. And I didn't get an A-plus in the class, but I got through with a B, and it was because on the opposite end, I had a teacher who said to me – she was very realistic. She's like, yeah, this is probably – you're not going to major in economics in college, but you can do this. And she did hold my hand, and she walked me through the process, and I ended up doing well in the class. And, again, that was the influence of one person. So I just wanted to give you kind of the two opposite ends of – how one person can really tear you down and make you feel small. But on the other end, someone can take you and build you up where you didn't have confidence in your own ability to do something and someone helps give you that confidence. And so I, I, I've been very fortunate to actually have both of those experiences. So I really, really truly appreciate the good because I really saw and i experienced what that negative teacher you know that influence that negative teacher can have on on a student
0: yeah I think it's really important. And like I say, it can be such a powerful thing. And when you remember that in everyday interactions and how you go about it, and and, and what you said about, you know it's the one time that particular child gets to experience this thing. As a musician, I always have the same sort of thoughts when I'm surrounded by other musicians. It's that kind of, this might be the 400th time I've done this particular performance of this particular show, but it's probably the only time that member of the audience has come to see it. And they deserve to have the best time that they can um and and that really is a different mindset i think um and 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 changes the enjoyment and and what you is that you can bring to the to the performance and and the the teaching and all of those different things it's incredibly incredibly powerful now tell me is there a piece of advice that you would now give your younger self or or the best piece of advice that, that you've been given that you think would be supportive for people listening
1: so yes so i have one piece of advice that i think is the best and it's um god gave us two ears and one mouth so we should listen twice as much as we talk
0: perfect and succinct and so incredibly (laughs) true so incredibly true
1: and i struggle with it every single day and i have to keep telling myself melissa two ears and one mouth because i'm a talker so but i it has helped me become a much better listener
0: now, we know resources are really important for people. Is there something which has had a big impact on your life? And this could be professional, personal, but and it could be anything from the podcast, a book, a video, film, song, and anything that's kind of just has that kind of, yeah, this is important to me for whatever reason.
1: I mean, there. Are, I'm a voracious reader, so I could give you a million books, but I would say as an educational leader, by far the most influential book that I've ever read is Servant Leadership, by Greenleaf his last name is Greenleaf and basically the idea of servant leadership is by putting everybody before myself and by serving every other person's needs in the environment I will be able to serve myself and so I I try not always perfect at it but I try and look at situations especially with the people who work with me and around me of not what I can get from them, but what it is that I can do to provide for them to be successful. Because what I have found is when you're constantly promoting other people and you're investing in their success, it pays off tenfold for you and i'll give you an example i mean in the united states we we have a teacher shortage and it's not surprising after the pandemic teachers are not paid enough they're not treated respectfully and a lot of them are saying okay you know then i'm done and i'm out <laughs> to go find something else to do and what i've realized is that teachers have choices and so i just said to my entire faculty this year if you need to leave or want to leave your position here at our school and da da da. It's okay. Just tell me. I will be a reference for you. I will help you. I will write a recommendation. I will sit down and brainstorm what you might want to do. But I just want to make sure that I'm helping you be the best person you can professionally even if you're not serving in our community. And knock on wood, were n- our schools not having a teacher shortage next year. And sometimes I think it's because When people know that you do actually care, and that wasn't window dressing, I do care about the people that that work with me and around me, and I want them to genuinely be successful. And if they're not going to be successful at the school that I'm leading, then I want them to be successful somewhere else. But I think that it's that type of investment through servant leadership that ends up paying dividends later, and it goes back to the community you talked about, Mark, and it goes back to those relationships. Um, we are human beings who crave interaction with one another, and we love relationships. And those are more important to us than anything. And I think if you talk to most people, they would say, I would make less money if I knew that every day I went to work, I love the people I worked with, and they, I knew they cared about me. Most of us would, would make a little less money in order to have that. And I believe that Servant Leadership and that book in, in particular. And the message from that book was was the most influential for me uh, as an educational leader, for sure.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and as always, we'll have links to all these things in the show notes as well. So if you didn't quite grab it as we were listening, then the show notes will, will give you a link straight through. So, yeah, in, in, incredibly powerful. I think, you know, it so often comes across. It's that it's those, everything's relationships, no matter what. Uh, colleague to colleague peer to peer friend to friend whatever it happens to be and and that's the thing you remember and it's the thing which i think if you're able to give as well like you said it, it makes It makes life incredibly important and incredibly powerful and and incredibly worthwhile and and when it's authentic um like i said it's amazing how it comes back to in ways that you'd never know and um and that's not necessarily the reason for doing it but it is amazing that that's the way it often works out and i think it just gives that kind of that kind of momentum to life and that progression in life which then means that anything is possible and i think sort of showing that and sort of mirroring that to pupils especially if you're in, in the school system i think is incredibly important
1: I really agree with that, and one other thing on sort of that servant leadership is sometimes it it doesn't have a dividend, and and that's okay too because I, at least from my perspective, I kind of have like a checklist of things I go through to just always check myself to make sure that I'm treating people with the respect and the dignity that they truly deserve, and so sometimes that sort of servant leadership approach doesn't pay off. I probably have been taken advantage of sometime or exploited sometime in my life because of that. And it doesn't anger me for whatever reason, because I have stayed very true to what my ethical and moral sort of map looks like. And so if I'm like, okay, well, I I can't control what somebody else is going to do. I can only as I say, control my own reaction and how it is that I conduct myself. And so I still walk away from those situations saying, OK, well, that person made choices, choices I don't agree with or that were unkind or, or exploitive or, or whatever it is. But I still stay true to what my ethical and moral, moral standards were for, for this. And so it's, it's made it a little bit easier than to not take things personally and to sort of separate myself from that process a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, I love that, and uh, like I say, easier to to say than to do sometimes, isn't it? But I, I think when 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 you've when you've when you've got. A that checklist and adverted comments and you you sort of just think no this is what I'm about and no matter what comes on and then I think I think you then do attract those things I certainly have been in situations in and work situations and communities where there's a little bit of time where you sort of have people who come and go because they don't quite fit in with that kind of philosophy or that kind of ethos but over time you kind of get this core of people that just kind of bounce off and and react to that in a positive way which then creates an atmosphere and an environment which is truly for those people who are working or, or, or involved in it, which I think is, um, is then incredibly powerful. And so just as we finish off, fire is obviously incredibly important in education on fire. So we've got feedback, inspiration, resilience and empowerment. What does that say to you? What, what talks to you when you when you hear those words, um, from your sort of experience within the as an educator?
1: Well, I mean, I love all of them. I think that as an educational leader, it's incredibly important that I'm communicative with everybody in the community, whether it's the parents, the students or the faculty and staff. And so I think that the way to do that is by giving meaningful and transparent and truthful feedback to people and that even when you have to have difficult conversations, when people know that you're coming from a place of respect and you're treating them with respect and dignity, even if it's difficult, I have found that that helps to develop relationships. So I think that feedback's important. Um, inspiration every single day. I, I I think people should be looking for it in others. I think that they should be looking for it in themselves, and I. Look for people every day that I say to myself, that person inspires me to be a better version of myself. and so i'm 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 looking for that in other people. And then, as far as resilience, um, just watching so many people through the pandemic kind of getting knocked down and picking themselves up, it's incredible to see how resilient people are in the face of adversity, and I'm constantly in in awe of that. But on the tail end with empowerment, what I would say is, I'm not sure as much in the UK, but in the United States, it's still not as common to have women in true leadership roles as it is for men, even in the field of education. And so as a female um, leading a, a large Catholic school, especially in the Catholic faith, where traditionally it's a very paternalistic hierarchy, right? They're not women do not have the top leadership positions within the Catholic church at all. What I find is I feel that part of my role as a female educational leader is to empower young people, especially younger women, to find their voice earlier and to lean in and to make sure that they are part of the process and to advocate for themselves. I don't think I learned, Mark, to advocate for myself and didn't feel that sense of empowerment early enough in my life, even though I've had very positive, my mother included very positive female role models. And so if that's one drum that I can beat, it is empowering younger women to not only avoid some of the mistakes that I made, but to definitely find their voices earlier. Because if I had found my voice a little bit earlier, I think there are situations where I would have been able to be more proactive. I probably would have been treated better. I think I would have been compensated better in my job if I had advocated for myself. So I would say on the front end, the back end, the feedback and the empowerment for me are probably the two most important parts of that acronym, but they're all you know incredibly important.
0: Well, Melissa, thank you so much for your authenticity and your inspiration and um, if I lived anywhere near Atlanta I think I'd like my my children to, to have the sort of the thought the sort of education and, and, and the sort of mentorship that you're obviously doing within your school in your district I think it's it comes across very powerfully and 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 yeah on behalf of all the people that I think that you're working with and the parents involved I'm sure they're incredibly grateful and I'm really grateful that you you spent the time sharing it with all of us and that's what I love about the podcast is that even in different continents we can share this information and there's someone somewhere thinking yes, I'm now empowered by the sorts of messages and the conversations and things that we're able to share. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, Mark, I mean, you're being way too kind with your words, I very much appreciate them. But truly, when you're in a school such I mean, probably any organization, but in a school situation, you're really truly only as strong as the weakest link. And so I am incredibly fortunate where I've been in the school community. I have been for nine years as a parent, as a teacher as an administrator now as the principal, and I wouldn't, we wouldn't have the community of Karen and we wouldn't have the success that we're having within this, within this community if everybody wasn't dedicated to sort of that same goal of making sure that our students are successful. And so I, I really can't take the credit. I just, I just happen to be in a place where I'm able to be surrounded by people that are incredibly gifted and talented and wonderful. In fact, I have said more than once that my superpower, if, if I had a superpower, it's a keen ability to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am and better at what they do than, than I am. <laughs> and, then, and that's sort of what I consider my superpower. And so I just, I just feel very grateful um, to be where I am and grateful to be able to speak to people like you and just hopefully, yeah, hopefully empower other people to be their best versions of themselves.
0: What a perfect way to end. Thank you so much indeed.
1: You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com.